Hey there, everyone. Welcome to the Vanu Podcast. We are the visual arts at Northwest Nazarene University. My name is Mike Bartlett, and we are here to make connections between art and the real world. All right, everyone, we are going to pick up on this next episode of the Vanu Podcast with Jake and Amy and Laura. Let's listen in to their conversation as we continue from last week and their conversation about sustainability, creation, artwork, and many more things. As as we were installing the show that you shipped to us, I had a, a student in the gallery who was helping us, uh, helping me to, you know, follow your instructions and assemble these uh, individual sculptures and then put the sort of the, the tent part over the PVC pipe. It was interesting. <clears throat> Excuse me. We had this conversation about, you know, she at one point said, it feels like we're going camping, like we're setting up our campsite. And I was like, I think that's exactly what Laura is going for this idea of it takes labor to actually set this up and to figure out, you know, if this was going to be our shelter for the night, you know, how could we strategically arrange this, but also then to notice all the different patterns as we were going over and we were steaming the fabric and trying to get the wrinkles out, thinking about, yes, it's practical. It's an actual shelter that would, you know, cover us, keep us safe, you know, divide the outside from the inside, but also imagining the lives of these fabrics before they, became part of this structure and kind of what you were saying, this idea of like, you know, this was on someone's body or this was on someone's bed. And so this idea of both functional, you know, shelter, but also all these different stories that come together, much like you would have all these different stories in a tent, you know, community where people have gotten there for all different variety of reasons so I, I liked even being able in the process of setting it up to be able to have those conversations with the student and just talk about, you know, what is her connection to camping and being outdoors and, and my experiences. So I, I really enjoyed that, that idea running throughout the show. Yeah. And, and this, these structures are, they're, they're ultimately not practical, though. They're, they don't have doors. They don't have an entry point. And I was thinking about them as being containers, too, like kind of as a vessel that would hold or create space for um, people, for ideas, like kind of as this, like a metaphor of like a holding space. Um, and also kind of thinking about... I. I these were made when Trump was shortly after Trump was elected and there was a refugee ban and um, people were no, you know, Muslim, Muslim travel ban. And it just, um, there's not like this, this idea that you're not allowed here. There's no space for you. Um, you are not welcome to enter. Um, just seems so absurd um, and untrue to me. And um, we have so much in this country and like, how can we not extend that to somebody who is in crisis and has nothing? And they're oftentimes like women and children who are just trying to survive and are taking extreme and extraordinary risk to um, find a better life for themselves and their families. And um, so, yeah, I, th I think in some, in some ways these, the work is, 
a holding space or a monument for that for that struggle. Um, and and kind of adjacent to housing in in the U.S. Yeah, it brings up some really interesting um, issues. Just thinking about space in general and the idea that these are containers, these are vessels, this is a holding space, but it's also the, you know, the the found fabrics that they were used fabrics. That, yeah, it's weird and it's gross, but it's also sacred and, and sublime and like con connecting all those together. Um, you know, so, so like politically it makes sense, but does does it do anything? For, maybe I'll preface it like this. Um, I love Father Greg Boyle. He's one of my favorite writers. And he, in speaking about the Eucharist, he has this great quote I use all the time. That's, God's not concerned, um, and I'm paraphrasing, God's not concerned that we'll forget that this is sacred or divine. He's more concerned that we'll forget that it's ordinary, that it's in the ordinary, that it's in the everyday life, that you don't just have to be in church with this special little wafer or this tiny little cup, but it's, it's in the bread and it's in our communities. Um, so did, did you find like, um, did this process of making this work and then the work that comes after those rage quilts, um, did it, did it connect or reveal maybe something, um, more spiritually or like, revitalize it or did you connect it to any kind of liturgical practice or sacred space or, or how did, how does that enter into your work? Yeah. Um, I think that I've always had a really complicated relationship with prayer. Um, and for me, time spent in the studio is about as close as I get to prayer. Like I think that that act of, um, of making is, is so calm and meditative. And it, um, I think is a space where I find a lot of personal and like mental clarity. Um, and, and I think too, like I always tell students that to, um, like when we're like, I teach an art appreciation class. And so like when we're looking at a painting, of or a portrait of somebody that the artist has chosen to represent that person and to create a representation of a, of another person is to show them care and to show them um, is to pay attention to them. And so I, I think a lot of times um, too, like the tradition of quilting, people oftentimes make a quilt for a person. Like it, it is like has a very, one-to-one -one relationship. And so to like make something as a gift is to be thinking of that person and to be holding them um, kind of like in your thoughts and, and prayerfully as, and, and that's not to say that every moment you're like having this divine like thought and care. Sometimes I'm listening to a podcast that is like true crime or something, or I'm watching Netflix or like, it's not that every moment is like that, but the sustained making, I think, um, with the intention of kind of like doing something for, and I think art making in general, I think of as for is a, is a sharing act. And so, um, yeah, so that's kind of how I would maybe connect that. I kind of want to piggyback off that question that Jake asked, which is, you know, 
the carving out of that time in the studio, you know, a lot has changed in both of our lives since we were in graduate school. And especially for you, as you were saying, a mom and, you know, the caretaker for these two young kids and, you know, running a household. I'm curious, and this is something we talk quite a bit about in studio practice with our studio majors is, you know, how do you develop patterns and rituals and space for your studio time? You know, interesting to hear about the rage quilt process where it's, you know, at night, it's sort of a frantic, almost sounding process of, I I feel like I have to create, but I'm curious, you know, at this stage in your life, what are some of the sort of practices or rituals that you have that you set aside to actually make and create? That's a really good question. Um, I can very safely say that I am making significantly more work in my life right now with a three and six-year-old working part-time than I did like as a graduate student where that was like my full job or as an undergraduate student um, or even before I had kids. And I think there's something about having kids that, first of all, just like changes your relationship to time. Like your time is not your own. Your body is not your own. If like your kid wants to be up all night, like you're up all night. And and I think that that, first of all, that pattern of life just like completely knocked me off my feet and it was really rough getting used to it. But then I think you start to find these pockets of time um, within a day of caretaking where you're like, I have 20 minutes and like my kids are occupied. Or um, like if I, if I, if I put on Bluey for, for 30 minutes, like I can have 30 minutes in the studio and like, you better believe that I'm going to be like a bat out of hell <laughs> making work in that 30 minutes. Like, I think there's like, there's like a preciousness of time that I never experienced before kids that it was kind of like, eh, yeah, maybe I'll get to the studio this afternoon. And like, maybe it'd be like four 30 and then I would kind of run out of time, but like, eh, I'll go tomorrow. And like, it just didn't feel urgent. And something about having children, um, has really made all time extremely urgent in maybe not a healthy way, but, um, So then when I do have time, I am putting that time to use. And I think then maybe some of that mental labor of, of making like, what am I going to make? What's the next step that's happening while you're doing your everyday boring other things. And then, so like you're, you're doing all the percolating when you're not in the studio. And so then when I'm in the studio, it is like, it's just constant making. And if I'm not making something then it's like time to go unload the dishwasher or something like it's not, um, it's just like way more efficient. And, and I don't have time to like sit around and like feel sorry for myself because my ideas aren't good enough or I don't know. I think I've spent a lot of my early art career feeling inadequate and sorry for myself. Kind of this like, woe is me navel gazing as an artist. And I don't have time for that anymore. And I'm going to make what I'm going to make as I have time and just try to, I don't know. It'll come together. <laughs> as, as you think about that and, and s- kind of demarcating this time, is it, is the pressure of that? Oh, I've got one episode. Does that get you right into the making mode or is there some kind of conversion process? And I think back to like my grad school days where, yeah, with young kids, you've got to figure this out, but 
it wasn't as easy as here's my kids, here's my classes, here's my job. Now at studio, I had to like get myself into that space. Is there any kind of ritual or liturgy that you go through that kind of like, okay, I'm in my studio. If I put on this music or I light this candle, I'm in go mode. Or is it just like, nope, I've only got 20 minutes. Here it is. Yeah. I think I just like walk in and start making, I have a, I have a home studio, which is just like a back porch off of my kitchen. And so it's right there. So sometimes, and I do, I think that that's what I really like about this process of sewing is that it's so easy to start and stop. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's like, and it, it kind of is like, um, if you're like going on a road trip and you have to drive a hundred miles, like that's kind of what quilting feels like. It's like, okay, I'm going to do this thing until the thing is done. And so you're like, I got five minutes. I got I can, I can go a mile, I can go 20 miles and then you just stop when you have to stop and it can stay there and it'll wait for you. Um, and so, and, and so maybe some of that is like the planning, the processing has already happened. And so then it's just the sort of the labor that has to come into play. We were talking about some of our grad school memories last night and thinking about well, the experience that you were talking about, which is you know, kind of staring at a blank wall and being like, what's a good idea? You know, before I even touch the materials, trying to have this like complex and, you know, very conceptually impressive, you know, idea going into it. And I'm wondering, it sounds like maybe that's changed for you where the doing it's part of, you know, the concept maybe reveals itself as you're actually making. Did you feel that shift where it went from, you know, feeling pressure to have an idea before you start actually doing the labor, the process to actually, Oh, the, the concept reveals itself as I'm working. Was there a shift that happens? And, and, and is that how it feels where the two are happening simultaneously rather than idea than the making? Yeah. I, I almost always forefront the making. Um, and I, I had this, realization at some point during graduate school, I had made, um, I, I did this project where I made 100 plush fabric balls, um, between kind I remember of like this. softball and like beach ball sized. And I was like, I'm making a hundred balls. They kind of remind me of like moon rocks or, um, like beach balls or, and one graduate professors like those are like hipster baby toys. And like, they were not cool, but finally somebody was says, well, it looks like you've made the material. Like the material is this 100 balls that I made, and now you have to figure out what to do with them. And I think that that, that statement gave me so much freedom to do, to do the making and to follow that weird instinct and then sort of ask questions of the work later. And, and sometimes it reveals itself and sometimes it takes a really long time and sometimes it wasn't a good idea. And now you have a hundred balls and you can take them like you don't have to keep them forever. Um, so yeah, I think always this, this instinct to make something, um, and usually thinking in really in abstract ways, like form and shape and color, um, and, and, t and texture or the ways that you can manipulate fabric. Like I have a folder of, um, Folder is a strong word. I have a collection of images on my phone. Like I'm constantly just taking pictures of stuff. Usually when I'm at the thrift store, like look at this really ugly throw pillow, but like how did they make the fabric make that shape? Or like look at the the hem on this 
really awful pillowcase. Like, I don't need to buy that thing, but I can look at that. Some other person has made this, and then that gives me a jumping off point for something else. So, like, in regards to that, with that input, that kind of, like, because you have this urge to make, I, I guess maybe to start with, so your MFA is in new media? Yes. And did you feel that, like, that gave you a lot more freedom with that? Because I, I have an MFA in new genre, same kind of thing. It's it's not easily classifiable. And so any everything was on the table. And so the making became more of a thing. And at some point, you just shut your brain off and you just go, I'm just making. I don't care what it means. You tell me what it means. Here's the thing. So when you're when you're collecting those things, and I think a lot of ours have a similar process of, of that archiving, are you also kind of archiving um, other artist work? Like who's inspiring you for this, whether they're historical or contemporary or mentors or whatever? Who, who do you look to that's kind of like driving that? So you've got this material process that's driving that, but... What, what are the other influences that kind of feed you when you get that, that mm-hmm. making urge? Yeah, um, I, I think a lot about social practice. Um, and, and so um, Muriel Laterman-Ukelis has been an artist that's super influ- influential. Um, Theaster Gates is another artist I really like. Uh, Nick Cave, um, the artist, not the singer. Um, who is now also an artist, but that's another topic. Um, and who else? Um, I've been looking at a lot of quilters, both kind of contemporary and traditional. Um, Sister Corita Kent, um, Carrie James Marshall, um, kind of like a wide range of art there's a lot lot of color I like color if you didn't know that yet um yeah I think that's the end of that answer I'm curious um as you kind of think about you know the projects you're working on now and also kind of finding rhythm being in your home studio do you do you plan out like what's your next body of work or do you have base set aside for like, I'm just going to start making essentially what I'm asking. Do you know kind of what you're going to be working on next? I do actually. Um, I have been slowly percolating a project for about a year and a half. Um, last summer I made a quilt, not a quilt, a, a robe that was fully covered in socks, disguarded Socks, like I just felt like my whole life was like, oh my God, all I do is pick up other people's socks off the floor. Like, why are there so many, like, there's only six other pairs of feet in, or six other feet in this house. Like, why are there 10,000 socks on the floor? So um, I collected all these socks from neighbors on my buy nothing group and sewed them all to this robe. And I made this, this huge robe that's very, very heavy with socks. And um, that idea really was people were like I get it I get this and and so um my my next sort of instinct is to create a body of work that sort of like deals with these domestic burdens I think many of which became very apparent during the pandemic um but so I'm I'm so I'm currently collecting um shoulder pads and bra cups 
um, pot holders. And then I think I might do something with vintage, like linens. Um, so like thinking about these kind of domestic burdens that are also sort of fabric inspired. So things along that line. So I have a show this summer, so that's going to be my winter, my winter making. I love that. And I, I love the sort of seemingly randomness of those objects, but also visually imagining the relationship between them in terms of size and shape and color. Um, and I also think it's interesting, you were talking about your uh, sculptures that are currently in the gallery as containers and this idea of, you know, both, you know, concealing or hiding the body, but also sort of being bodies themselves, sort of these containers for mystery. And I'm also thinking about the way that you know, if you're making work that goes onto a body that moves with the body and, you know, has life of the person wearing it, that would probably, you know, just give a whole different sort of meaning to the work itself as it relates to the wearability and where does this person wear this object in this context. So I'm really excited to see what comes of that body of work. Yeah, I'm, I'm interested in fashion and um, sort of thinking about Nick Cave, his work, um, his, his sound suit specifically exists to obscure the identity and gender and race of the person who is wearing them and they become this disruptive object when worn in performance, um, but then they can also exist in a static way in a gallery space and so thinking about that relationship um, between something that's performative um, and, and what does it look like the work to come out of a gallery um, and what are those possibilities. It's always really interesting to me as well. Does Mike have any other? Yeah, so just, just kind of one more as we, as we wrap up. Thank you for sharing your time with us generously. Um, and you're doing an artist talk um, and, and we'll have that, but you can also check out the work in the gallery uh, right now, but also online. And we have links to all that and check out our Instagram. Um, but dealing with this in an educational space and students encountering your work in the gallery and you in their studio space, what's like a piece of advice or some advice that you would give to like our undergrad students who are, you know, in the midst of the semester and they've got five classes and they're still trying to find the space to make work. What's like a piece of advice or some advice that you would give to them? I would say to really follow your gut and like do the thing that you want to do, even though it maybe doesn't make sense or it seems absurd or figure out a way to do the things that you have to do in conjunction with things you want to do. So if that means, um, for me, sometimes that means like making a lot of art while I watch TV because I like to watch TV and then it like sort of validates the TV watching if I can sew while I'm watching TV. Um, or, you know, bring it, bring a project with you while you're going to an event or I don't, I like, find ways to marry your art practice with your daily life. And I think that that makes it feel less of a chore and more kind of interesting. And kind of one follow-up question to that, and that, this is taken directly from a conversation with a, a, a student who's in my studio practice class saying, how do I 
how do I know when I've found my style or like, how do I have a distinctive style that feels like good and like kind of along the lines of following your gut? Do you have anything you would say to a student like that where they're just like, I don't know what my style is, but I really want to find it. Hmm. I think just making a lot of art is the key to that. Like purging your system of all of, like we all are filled with bad art at the beginning. And so you just have to make a lot of bad art at the beginning to purge your system of that. And then you sort of start figuring out through all of those mistakes, which is ultimately experience, you find out through that experience what not to do. And I think like every misstep is also a step forward. Um, And then eventually, I think too, just paying attention to what you're visually drawn to. Like, um, I know Gen Z talks a lot about your aesthetic, um, but I think that that really informs the kind of work you look at um, is also um, the kind of work that you want to make. Like what's, there's a great Ira, Ira Glass quote that essentially is like the thing that made you in the game is you have really good taste and like figuring out how to close the gap between what you can make and like bringing it up to your standard of taste is like the work of an artist. And I, I'm totally misquoting that. Um, no, you're right there. It's, it's your taste is killer. Yeah. You have killer the thing taste. that got you into the game. Yeah. You fight your way through it. Oh yeah. I know that one. Yeah. So I, I think that's just, you gotta keep going. I like that. I like that, especially the idea of like purging the bad work that's in you. <laughs> I think that's, it, it's both a comforting thought to think like, oh, there's something on the other side of this, but also a very relatable one where it's like, we've all, we've all had that where we're like, I know I can do better, but in order to do better, I have to fail and figure out what actually works. Yeah. And then you don't just do it once. It's not just a one-time purge of that bad art. You, you've got to just get comfortable making bad art all the time and failing forward. Wasn't that great? I love hearing different conversations and perspectives on creative work from different people. If you want to see more of what Laura's doing, follow her on Instagram at Laura Wenstrom. That is L-A-U-R-A-W-E-N-N-S-T-R-O-M. All together, straight on Instagram. If you have any questions for us, you can find us on Instagram as well at VA underscore underscore NNU or send us an email at art at NNU.edu. We'll see you next time.